I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. For us, the most important outcome of childhood and adolescence is having the brain you're going to have for the rest of your life. Then golly, you sure want a brain that's motivated to set and pursue goals that are meaningful to that person himself. Otherwise, we as employers or teachers or parents or whatever, will spend our lifetime trying to apply carrots and sticks to get kids to do what's in their own best interest rather than wanting them to do what's in their own best interest. Welcome to Till Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm Debbie Reber, your host, and I am so thrilled to be bringing this conversation today with Dr. William Stixrude and Ned Johnson. They're authors of the fantastic game-changing book, The Self-Driven Child, the science and sense of giving your kids more control over their lives. I'm just giving you a heads up. This is one of those episodes, the kind that is likely to spark you and challenge you and get you thinking about your relationship with your differently wired child a little differently. Because in this conversation, we explore Bill and Ned's belief based on decades of experience working with kids like ours, that the best thing we can do for our child is to give them more control and autonomy over their own lives, even and perhaps especially when their choices are not resulting in the kinds of immediate outcomes we hope to see in our children. So as you'll hear in our conversation, The Self-Driven Child is a book that fundamentally changed the way I parent Asher, and it has improved our relationship in a very real way, not to mention has felt so much better for me as a parent. And a little bit about my guests. Dr. William Stixrud is a clinical neuropsychologist and a faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and George Washington University Medical School. He lectures widely on the adolescent brain, meditation, and the effects of stress, sleep deprivation, and technology overload on the brain. And Ned Johnson is the founder of Prep Matters, a tutoring service in Washington, D.C., and the co-author of Conquering the SAT, How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome the Pressure and Succeed. 
He is a sought-after speaker and teen coach for study skills, parent-teen dynamics, and anxiety management. And he's been featured in NPR, NewsHour, U.S. News and World Report, Time, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. And now I'll get to my conversation with Dr. William Stixrude and Ned Johnson about the self-driven child. Hey, Bill and Ned, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I just have to say, I just have to have my little moment here where I thank you formally on air for writing this book, The Self-Directed Child. It is one of those books that changed fundamentally how I parent my child. And there have only been a few of those along the way. Uh, The Explosive Child is one of them. Positive Discipline is one of them. And this is one of them. So I'm just thrilled to be able to share your insights with my audience. I think it's so relevant. And also to talk about how your approach and philosophy really applies to parents who are raising kids who are in some way neurologically atypical. So as a way to get into the conversation, would you both just take a moment to introduce yourselves? And I'm curious to know how you got paired up together, how, how your relationship to write this book came about. Well, I, I'm Bill Stixrud, and I'm, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, and I make a living by testing kids if they're having learning problems or attention problems or emotional problems or some concern about autism, they're struggling socially, and I try to figure out what's going right, what's going wrong. And how to help them. And I'm a, I'm a test prep geek. I've spent 25 years helping kids combat an alphabet of standardized tests like the SCT and ACT. Uh, and figured out pretty early on that while tests are standardized, kids aren't. And so I had the opportunity working one, one-on-one with kids to really try to figure out what, a, what a, a, in a situation, what it revealed about the student as much as it revealed about the test. And then tried to work on ways to bend and weave and, and, and kind of meet kids where they are and try to teach them in ways that fit their learning needs rather than my, uh, my default approach. And I think some, so somebody introduced Ned and I several years ago and thought that we, we thought a lot alike. And I got to know Ned, and, and I love the fact that Ned is so brilliant at getting kids to perform better on tests because he used the principles that are in our book. You know, he has kids rest more. He, he has, works on lowering their stress level, putting the test in perspective so it doesn't feel like that big a deal. And the stuff that we talk about in the self-driven child is something that, that was intuitive to him, intuitive to me. So we started lecturing together and eventually decided to write a book about the most useful stuff that we know. Hmm, that's great. It's such a great collaboration. And I think you both bring such unique perspectives and strengths to the work. So it's very successful, in my opinion. So let's talk about control because that's really where your book starts. And that was kind of the first piece that really resonated with me was how important it is for kids to have a sense of control. Can you talk about why that is so critical? So this is Bill, you know, what I I noticed er, very early in my career, and I've been a psychologist for 35 years, that I do therapy and I work with young adults. And it's very common for them to say, you know, I, I'm 35, but I, feel like I, said I spent the first 35 years of my life trying to live up to other people's expectations. Now I'm trying to figure out what's important to me. And I think I started thinking that that, that doesn't make sense. We, we really we could be helping kids at a much younger age, giving, giving them a sense that this is really their life. 
And when we when we discovered the science of, of control, is this sense of control, you know, we we knew from early research on learned helplessness that, that the sense of control is hugely important. We knew we've known for several years that a low sense of control is arguably the most stressful thing in the universe. And one of the things that Ned and I are so concerned about is, is the huge degree to which anxiety and depression are affecting young people. And these are stress-related disorders. And we figured that if a low sense of control is the most stressful thing you can experience, and we have all these stress-related problems, it must be a really big deal. And then we, we looked at the research, some animal research that showed that if you have the experience of being able to manage a stressful situation successfully, it changes the brain in ways that make you effective coper and minimizes the extent to which you experience the harmful effects of stress. So can you just define or describe examples of what control looks like then at maybe different ages? Because I think when people hear this, that they need to give their kids control, they're not sure. Are you talking about giving them a choice? Like you can either do this or you can do this. And or as they get older, is it really giving them control over their choices academically and, and otherwise? What does that mean? Well, you, you know, giving having kids have a sense of control isn't putting the toddler in charge of the household. Because in some ways, giving kids responsibilities that exceed their capacity to handle them isn't a gift. It's, it's a curse because it'll overwhelm them by the stress of that. But exactly your point, Debbie, you know, they're, they're, when kids are toddlers, right, they can choose what book they read or what clothes they wear, even if they don't, you know, meet contemporary fashion standards. You know, as they get older, you know, what language do they want to study? Do they want to study an instrument? If they do want to study an instrument, which one do they want to play, right? You know, do, do choices in high school, choices about friends, choices about how they spend their time after school. And and even within that context, it isn't that the parents have no say whatsoever, because that's not at all what we're advocating for. We really want parents to have an authoritative approach rather than a lazy fare or an authoritarian approach. But as much as we can, if kids have more control, some say over their lives, they're much more willing to go along with things when maybe they just kind of have to go along with them. But also some of that control is even if I as the parent and the authority, and I'm sort of saying this is the broad framework, and I say this is what it's going to be, if my kid strongly disagrees with me and can say, yeah, but but, but, but," if we're willing to be be collaborative, if we're willing to have a respectful relationship with them, which means that I'm willing to be overruled. You know, my daughter, you know, makes a really strong case and I say, well, it's a good point. You know, I might see it differently, but her thinking is not crazy. And if it's not crazy, it makes a heck of a lot of sense for me to go with it um, because it's, we're, again, we're trying to help kids develop intrinsic motivation and, and, and greater and greater stress tolerance. And so, yeah, you start with very simple choices when they're toddlers, but you need to have them have as much autonomy as they can possibly handle as teens because we're really trying to prepare them for going off into the adult world and making all those choices for themselves. You know, and, and, and Debbie, I'll, this is Bill, and I'll, I'll just add that you know, you see, you see this showing up in kids by the time, certainly by the time they can talk and they say, you aren't the boss of me. This, this desire to have a sense that this is my life and I get to make choices about my own life. And the way, the way I work with parents often, I say the goal is for your kid to be able to largely run his own life for six months before you send him off to college. And let's work backwards. Let's think about the kinds of things that he can be increasingly become responsible for that will enable him basically run his own life for a while before he goes off to school. 
so yeah, I, I agree with what Ned said, and I love I love the fact, Debbie, that that you put our book in the <laughs> in the in, the, in, the, in the same sentence as Explosive Child and um, Positive Discipline. So I have so much respect for that work. And you know, Ross Green's uh, saying to, 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 to who wrote the Explosive Child, saying to parents, to tell your kid, I'm not going to use the force of my will to try to make you do things. It's just such a powerful thing. And one of the things we say in our book is you really can't make a kid do something against her will. And so, so this idea of supporting a sense of control so kids aren't constantly fighting us is really a useful thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll just share that for me, you know, I have I have a 14-year-old son who I homeschool, who is twice exceptional, a complicated human, and I change things really instantly after reading your book, even in terms of those battles over getting work done. And, and you know, it is a balance because, you know, with a differently wired child, they need more scaffolding than a neurotypical child would need and more supports. But just recognizing that ultimately he has to be the one to to make this happen. Like if I'm sitting over him saying, oh, I didn't notice you're, you ch- switched to comics on your screen, get back to Marine Bio or whatever it is, that wasn't working. And it was creating so much conflict for us. And I, I even started using that idea of me being the consultant and that language of, you know, I've got office hours and here's when I'm available. So that was a huge shift for me. Can you Explain what you mean by that terminology of a parent being that consultant. What does that actually look like? Because I think a lot of parents get really anxious about school, especially homework, grades, especially in middle school and high school when it feels like the stakes are really high. This is Bill. And there's two, I had two experiences early in my career that got me thinking about this consultant idea. The first was that I would, I would see a lot of underachievers, so kids with ADHD or learning disabilities, and they wouldn't do their work. And I'd ask them, if you don't turn in an assignment, who's most upset? And invariably, they'd say, my mom. Then I'd say, who's next most upset? And they'd say, my dad. Then they'd say, who's next most upset? My teacher, then my tutor, then my therapist. You know, the kid was, the kid was never on the list. And that, there seemed like something fundamentally wrong about that, because that I, I, I want kids to have an understanding, a clear understanding, who's responsible for what. Also at that same time, one of my close friends who was being trained in a certain kind of psychotherapy was told, don't work harder to help your clients solve their problems than they do because you're going to weaken them because you're going you're to make them think the solution to the problems is within you, not within them. And I've trained hundreds of tutors over the last 30 years to work with kids with learning disabilities and ADHD and I, I always tell them, don't work harder to help your, your clients on their reading or their math than they do. You'll weaken them. And when we change, the, we make sure that the energy is not mostly coming from us. Kids usually step up to the plate. Ned, do you want to add? Yeah. I mean, one of the people, uh, Edward Deese, who's one of the founders of what's called self-determination theory. And it's a model of intrinsic motivation. And he makes this really important distinction between autonomous motivation and controlled motivation. Controlled motivation is the classic carrots and sticks. Autonomous is is an inner drive. And he makes this point, and I think it's a really important one, that the nature of the motivation, the how things get done, matters fantastically more than that they get done. 
So we, as parents or teachers or educators, it's so easy to think, well, gosh, at least we got this done. The total motivation is really high. But if 90% of that is external in carrots and sticks and only 10% is, is intrinsic, it's a terrible, terrible trade-off. And if we lean in with more, you know, parental angst or, or, or tutors pushing their parents, whatever, the kids will put even less energy. They'll, they'll do it because they have to. And for us, the most important outcome of childhood and adolescence is having the brain you're going to have for the rest of your life. Then golly, you sure want a brain that's motivated to set and pursue goals that are meaningful to that person himself. Otherwise, we as employers or teachers or parents or whatever, will spend our lifetime trying to apply carrots and sticks to get kids to do what's in their own best interest rather than wanting them to do what's in their own best interest. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. See, I think this is revolutionary, you know, because I think that 
we hear so much, especially with kids with ADHD, which my son has, that they need these external reward systems. And there, I hear from so many parents about this concern that their child is not motivated. And if they weren't there with the carrot and the stick or, you know, leading the charge, their kids would just fail out. So I hear you talking and, you know, the word that popped into my head is risky. I can assume that parents are thinking this is, this sounds risky to kind of step back and play, let my child have more of this um, controlled motivation and let them figure it out. And again, feeling like the stakes are high. So how do you recommend parents kind of walk that tightrope of letting go of that sense of control, not knowing if their kid's intrinsic motivation is going to be there to catch them? Well, this is mad. I mean, a couple of thoughts jumped to mind for me. One is that we work on the assumption that kids want to be successful. They have brains in their heads and they want their lives to work out. The challenge is they may just not do it on the time scale that we want because we know that there's such an unevenness in how brains develop. And the other question to point up being risky is, well, what's risky? That your kid isn't getting you know, terrific grades in fourth grade, or seventh grade? or or 10th grade or 12th grade or doesn't go to the most selective college versus having a a brain that's wired to want to do things for himself, right? And to Bill's point, an accurate model of how the world really works. I mean, both of us have seen so many, this kid I'm working with right now, who his mom has a tutor coming to their house four days a week, three hours a night. And I, and I sort of gobsmacked and I I said, well, uh," and she said, well, if, if the tutor doesn't show up, he won't do any work at all. And I said, with all due respect, it looks like he doesn't do any work at all, even with the tutor, because he's got, you know, he's got a, what, a 2.8 GPA. And the question is whether he's getting that grade point average with support or perhaps in, sp- in spite of the tutor. And, and I, there's a story in the book, my son is, is who's, he's not been tested, but I'm, I'm sure he would come out, you know, is inattentive, not hyperactive, but, you know, ADD. And in the middle of middle school, he was working on some assignment. My wife was helping. My wife's a really serious academic and a teacher herself. So she's great at this stuff. But, you know, she's a parent and she's a human being too. So she got a little frustrated with some assignment that hadn't been handed in or done or what have you. And she turned and, and sort of eyes flashing a little bit at my son and said, well, why, why didn't you hand it in or do whatever? And he immediately got defensive and, and shot right back at her because you didn't remind me. No, I'm watching this whole thing like, oh, we are both been dealt a losing hand here. And, and I, said, I said, listen, pal, first of all, don't throw your mother under the bus. That's a bad long-term play. <laughs> and then I looked at her. I said, sweetheart, you can understand why he thinks that you, you, you do this. You always do remind him. And my wife is one of these people, and probably a lot of people listening, you know, who, who runs our household. She's incredibly sophisticated in terms of all those logistics, all those executive functions. So she can run her schedule and, and, and my son's schedule, my daughter's schedule, my schedule. You know, we can outsource to you, Dad, if you need a little bit of help. Unbelievable. But just because she can do it for him doesn't mean that she should. So for all the parents who have kids who do have ADHD, who do have anxiety, we really want to have confidence that they want to be successful just as much as you want them to be successful. But it might be for different things, and most importantly, maybe on a different timescale. So for me, we watched our son dial up 52s on quizzes and tests through middle school because he'd done things like study the wrong chapter. 
But when it did give us an opportunity, when it didn't go well, so do you know, do you know why that didn't go well? And rather than why didn't you, it was like, do you know why? And it just totally changed the energy. And now, I mean, he's doing beautifully in high school. Actually, I was, the, the uh, counselor was telling her in rehab, he's been three months clean and sober. I'm teasing. Um, he's, doing, he's doing great. And I'm still able to say, hey, would you like some help with that? And most of the time I'll say no, but then half the time I'll come around and say, yeah, could you look over this for me? I'd really appreciate it. I got a question on this. And it's so, it's so lovely as a parent to be able to offer help. And if my kid doesn't want it, have him say no, and, and I'll step back. But when he does want help, he comes to me willingly, to my wife willingly, rather than our being on top of him all the time, which is lousy for him. And it's also a lousy you know, role to play as a parent. I'll say, too, that what I noticed uh, early on in my career was how often uh, it looked like parents or, or adults or other tutors would be spending 80, 80 units of energy, 80 units of energy trying to help a kid uh, get work done. And if the adult spent 80, the kid would spend 20. If the adults got more anxious and ratcheted up to 90, the kid would spend 10. And th- I used to think it was developmental. Well, the kid will just grow out of it. And it turns out, my, my experience is that it's not developmental. It doesn't change until the energy changes. And there's a woman who mentioned the book who, who has the first program that I'm aware of for ADHD kids, teenagers, that focuses on the promotion of autonomy. Because as you said, that all the research is on use of rewards, very almost no attention to the development of autonomy, which is so crucial for internal motivation. And what, what this clinician says is that in her experience, 40% of parents who are kids with ADHD, by the time the kid's 16, are kind of burnt out and you're on your own, buddy, and I've done what I could. And, and another 40% are, are still micro, micromanaging the kid's life with a lot of pushback. And that only 20 really are, have kind of really been focusing on this development of autonomy. And I, I had a, my son uh, was a kind of a late bloomer, a kid with ADHD and learning disabilities and no academic pressure. I never fought him about schoolwork. And I, I felt so lucky that when he was five, I, I was, I was um, advising people to set the title of the second chapter of our book, which is, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And that's where I introduced this idea of being consulted. I, I, I consulted with him. I, I was available to help him, but I didn't want to force my help on him. I didn't want to work harder than he did. I didn't want to put more energy than my son did. And he, he got through school, and eventually, as, as with that great burst of, of frontal lobe maturation that happens in young adulthood, went on and got a PhD in psychology. And I just think that if we think about the, who, whose responsibility is it, and it couldn't be a parent's responsibility to try to make their kid work because all the kid would have to do is flop to the floor and we couldn't make them. And I think recognizing that and changing the energy is healthy and it's effective. But let me add one thing about rewards. As we say in the book, we aren't opposed with kids with ADHD to using rewards in, in a particular kind of way in the sense that if we know kids with ADHD sit down for, with a boring assignment and they don't have enough dopamine in their prefrontal cortex to focus on it. Let's do something to promote the, the dopamine. And I'm okay with, with explaining to the kid about his brain, about the, this, this, this insufficient dopamine. And if a reward might stimulate him a little bit, produce the dopamine, I, I'm, I'm willing to do it. I just don't think that we want to basically be bribing kids, do it for me. Okay? This is what you need to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll reward you to do it, as opposed to using rewards to help a kid accomplish his own goals. Right. 
That's a good distinction. I mean, that's something, uh, you know, a book that I wrote for teens years ago is called Doable, and it's about how to accomplish just about anything. And I talk about that knowing if you are someone who is motivated by personal rewards, like I'm going to get to watch an episode of The Office after I turn in this homework assignment or whatever. That's a totally different thing than than bribery, as you say. You know, I'll, I'll say that this is a very different kind of idea for many parents. One, one, of, our, one of my clients about a year ago when the book came out, she emailed me and said, I just told my eighth grade son, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And first he smiled. And then he hugged me and then he said, is something wrong with your mom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that phrase and I use it. I use it probably once a week. Uh, I haven't gotten that kind of reaction from my son, but um, I think that the language and the communication styles that you offer in the book are so powerful. And just to tie it back to you, you talked about the effort the parents are putting in, you know, it does not feel good to be a parent, whether you're homeschooling or or not, to be nagging your child, to be playing that role, to get the pushback, to have your child annoyed with you. And there's something that just feels really calm and peaceful to just say, as you said, how can I help you? Or you know, what I'll say to Asher is I've got time between five and seven. I'll be in my office working if you want to pull up a chair and join me. I'm here for you. After that, I won't be available. And just the, those tweaks and language that you offer just change the energy in our in our whole house. And it changed the dynamic between the two of us in such a powerful way. That's great. You know, and years ago, sometime in the 1980s, a book came out called How to Deal with Your Acting Up Teenager that also takes this approach of not trying to force, you're not trying to control kids all the time. And a lot of parents of kids with ADHD said, well, this doesn't apply to my kid. And I called one of the authors of the book, who, who was probably in her late 70s at the time, and I said, do you folks think this applies to kids with ADHD? And she said, Bill, we think it's a matter of treating kids respectfully. And that really hit me. That, as Ned said, we, we think that kids want to do well, that they got a brain in their head, they want to be successful, and that we don't do them a favor by working harder than they do. Uh, we, we don't certainly do any favors by fighting about the same thing over and over again. I'm always amazed by the number of kids with whom I work who have ADHD, but they have no idea what it really means. Interesting. And so yeah, I asked this kid, and I just adore him, but he's, as, as is typical with a lot of boys, and especially boys with ADHD, does everything at the very last possible moment, in part because there's simply not enough activation. You know, and that looming deadline, that approaching deadline, perhaps the panic of the deadline that's half an inch away, activates him. And he's super sharp, but really ADHD. And so I explained to him, I said, look, you, um, you can't see the paper, but at one side of the paper, I put, here's you, and at the other, far end, here's the goal. And I said, you know, people like, I don't know, maybe your mom can sit there and go, ooh, that's an important goal. It's really far off, but she'll sit there and work on it consistently from point A to point B. And I said, you'll go, ooh, that's really important. And you'll start walking towards that. But then you go, ooh, first, squirrel. Oh, oh shoot, darn it, uh, ESPN. And you zig and you zag and you back, back and forth across. Your mom has a straight line from, from here to the goal. And you're all over the place. And it's just the way your brain works, that you don't have enough dopamine kicking through your head or your brain processes it very inefficiently. And he's like, you've just explained my entire life. And I'm like, but here's the great part. It's going to get better, right? 
it's going to get easier. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. I, I was wondering about specifically, you know, a lot of parents with differently wired kids believe strongly that our kids need us, right. To tell them what they need or that they're not capable of making decisions. I think so many of us from an early age are, you know, finding therapists and programs and we're so used to kind of running their life. And oftentimes they're not even having that conversation and really explaining to their child what's going on with them. And I think next thing you know, you've got a teenager and you're still operating under these assumptions. And so it's time to kind of, I guess, make that shift. And that's a hard thing for parents to even recognize they need to do. Right. I was at a, I was at a meeting at a Catholic school recently on an eighth grade student who I tested who had a language disorder and, and learning disabilities, was really struggling in eighth grade. And one of the learning specialists there said, it takes two learning specialists, a tutor, and, and the mom on the kid all the time in order to get him to do any work. You know, and, and predictably, I said, stop immediately, because this won't change until the energy changes. And I think that well, part of the reason I started to think like this was I saw so many kids who went, went off to college without any experience at all running their own life, making their own decisions. And I also found early in my career that that even little kids, if you, you say, let's think this through, let's think through the pros and cons, even six and seven-year-olds can make good decisions for themselves. And part of, the, part of our point in the book is we want kids to make good decisions. As Ned said, kind of informed decisions, you know, where we, we help them think through pros and cons, or we get other people to consult with us about what the right thing to do is but we want kids, including kids who are wired differently as much as possible, to be making decisions for themselves, especially by the time they're teenagers, because that's how you become independent. That's how you become a good decision maker is your practice. Right. And you say, you know, I, I don't know if I got the language exactly right, but, you know, I trust you to make decisions and to learn from your mistakes. And I, I say that little phrase a lot too. I'm trying to train my husband and using it as well, who who is still uh, often giving advice. And, and I often just say, you know, I, I trust Asher to make this decision and to learn from his mistakes. And I think that again, is such a freeing thing. And it feels really good for a kid to know that that you trust them, and that it's okay to screw up. It's, it's the, exactly as you said, that is how we learn. Right. And so, so often parents say of a kid who uh, is, is underachieving, and there's a lot of adult energy trying to get them to work harder, and, and they're afraid to pull back. And I often say, well, how much worse would it be <laughs> if it takes a bit, if three months to kind of get the idea that this is his life, he's going to have to work harder? Would that really be such a huge, profound setback, given how destructive it is for a kid to continue with all this bickering and fighting and all this attempts to force him? And I just don't like it when, when adults spend, when, when adolescents spend an awful lot of their energy trying to resist other people's attempts to get them to do what's probably in their own best interest. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. 
That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. You know, you talk about that a lot of our pressure on our kids is rooted in fear, um, which I very much believe as well. I talk about fear a lot within this uh, community and on this podcast and in my book. So do you have any ideas for how parents can flip that switch so they can kind of release some of that fear and, and hand over control without, you know, I guess, as you talked about shifting that energy? Oh, there's a lot of points in there. Right? One of it would be taking the long view. Right. And we have, we have in the, in the book, the, the story of the, the parable of the Chinese farmer, right. Who's, this very poor man, right? And, the, and the, his neighbor comes by and looks at this poor man. He's only got, a, he's a, he has so little money, he can only have one, one child, he can't afford anymore. And he's got this broken down horse. And he sort of shakes his head, you poor man, you have so little. And then one day the horse escapes and he said, oh my gosh, you had so little, now you have even less. What, what, what terrible bad luck. And the, and the farmer says, well, maybe yes, you know, maybe no, life is long, it's, it's hard to say. And the guy shakes his head and walks away. And then a couple weeks later, the, the horse returned, and, and it, somewhere along the line, he'd run into a, a group of wild horses, a herd of wild horses, and, and brought two back with it. So now they went from one horse to no horse to three horses. And he says, oh, my, what luck. And, and, and again, the farmer gained a philosophical answer, maybe yes, maybe no. Life is long. It's hard to say. And he gets to the business of, uh, of breaking the horses. So his son is out there working on breaking the lot of horse and gets thrown and breaks his leg terribly. 
And again, as you can imagine, oh, what terrible luck, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. And then finally word comes around that the emperor is looking to raise an army to, to go and, and fight the Mongols. And every household needs to send one son. But his son, one and only son cannot go because he's broken his leg. And so, so we know that, you know, from all of us, our own, own experiences, I mean, I have all sorts of things in my background that were really hard and, and I'd really rather not relive them. But I also would not want to have not lived them because, you know, the scars that I have from my difficult childhood and, and adolescence, I think are very much what make the best of me and how I deal with other adolescents who are sometimes having a hard time. And I think if most of us thought about that as, as adults, you know, we, we have all sorts of scars from life and, and some of them are, they make us sad to reflect upon, but they also make us who we are. And so if we knew that, I mean, you know, Bill especially is 35 years as a psychologist and even me 25 years as a test prep guy, we've seen so many kids who struggle and struggle and they're a mess when they're 10 or 12 or even 22 or 28 who eventually come around and live lives that are remarkable and meaningful and successful. And if we knew that these were simply the ups and downs of kids, and, and if I could tell you with, with complete confidence Asher is going to be a great human being. He is going to be a great adult. He's going to have a life that's successful to him. And everything along the way would just be part of the process. And you could sit back and say, okay, this is a disaster, but what's the learning that we're going to take out of here? Rather than what so parents, as we so easily do, is say this one data point, and we then draw you know, two bad episodes, and we make, we make a straight line that goes right into an abyss. And I would, I would submit that for us as adults who have a much longer view on the world than do our children, we should work really hard to take the long view on our kids and help our kids, even when they're struggling, particularly with kids who are going through rough spots with anxiety and depression, to say, this is part of your journey right now, but this is not who you're going to be. We have to get through this and I'm going to help you with it. And if we can have that confidence that somehow things are going to come together, it makes it much easier to have kids to keep working hard on making it come together. Yeah, over the years, you know, I've worked with a lot of families who have, have, have been talking to the parents, and they're telling me about a kid's problem. And one of them, usually the mom, but sometimes the dad will break into tears and say, I just wanted to feel good about himself. And after they stop crying, I say, I think we can more convincingly help him feel good about himself if we aren't so worried sick about him. And there's a chapter in our book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And our view is that it's really in kids' best interest if, if the parents move in that direction of being a non-anxious, not overly reactive presence. And in, the in this chapter, we talk about some of the ways that parents can get past some of the fear we have as parents. As Ned said, this taking a long view for many people is, is, there, is, is really powerful. And it's also true that, that some kids are, are just have more limitations and, and they have a harder time. And we talk about in the book about the wisdom of, in, in some cases, making peace with our worst fears. If, our, if my kids never get in via pennant, um, could, I, could I still love them? Would I still do everything I could to support them? Could I still have a meaningful and successful life, happy life? Um, could I enjoy my kid and love him the way he is? And almost everybody, if they really think about it, would say, yeah, I would. I, I could. And I think that, that that in itself, looking at what's my worst fear about my kid, but all, virtually all our fear about our kids, it's about, as, as Ned was saying, it's about the future. It's that they're going to get stuck in some negative place and never get better. And that's why 
taking this long view for many families is it's really helpful. And having done this so long, as Ned said, we can say, look, I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of kids like this who struggle and they, they do a lot better. But I think your kid is likely to be one of those. It really helps. And for kids who are, are more kids who are intellectually disabled or kids who have really severe autism, uh, where they may not be fully independent, then I think that this idea of, of looking at our worst fears, making peace with it, and really practicing kids, accepting kids as they are. Because this idea, if we want them to accept themselves, we want to work on our own fear and our own anxiety so that we can accept them. Absolutely. I love that. So I, I do want to just touch upon depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, Ned just brought that up. And you say that if a child is seriously depressed, that all bets are off. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just if parents are listening and they are concerned, well, I don't know if if I really my kid, I don't know, they might be depressed. And if I kind of pull back and give them autonomy, they might never leave their room or sit in, you know, refuse to go to school or how how can parents know if their child is in that space and and what should they do? And we talk about this in the third chapter of our book, which is about kids as decision makers. And as we talked about earlier, our view is we want to encourage kids to make decisions for themselves. And we want to require adolescents to make most of the important decisions about their own life. And I just, the, the, the caveats are, there, there are kids who are, 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 at least temporarily, are incapable of really thinking clearly. And those include kids who are, are significantly depressed, by definition, depression involves disordered thinking. And there are times when our kids, if they're depressed, if they're seriously drug involved, that or if they're, they're ridiculously deprived and they really just don't have the capacity to think rash, then there are times when we have to override. And they don't, if they don't want to be in treatment, they don't want to go to therapy, we insist that we override their decisions. So we want to do that cautiously because every time the kid has, kid says, I think I should do it this way, and the, as a parent, we say, no, I think it's better you do it this way. Every time we override the kid, part of what we're saying to a kid is don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own judgment. I know better than you do. And there are times, as I'm saying, where that's, that's the case and where we have to do that. But I think they're fairly, they're, they're fairly limited. Uh, they really, really involve these cases where kids, they, they can't think straight. I'm just working with a 16-year-old now who, is out, who has had a lot of psychiatric issues and is now um, 16 years old. And he's going to school quite infrequently. And his thinking is just, he's just a little bit out of touch with reality. And I'm, I'm encouraging his parents, we, we don't just go with his decision uh, because he's not capable right now of really making informed, clear decisions. Thank you. That's helpful. So... This has just been such a great conversation. There's so much more we could talk about, but I think this is a great introduction and I'm sure it's gotten parents thinking differently about the amount of control their child currently has and and changes they might want to make to start developing or helping their child develop uh, more a sense of agency and autonomy. And I love, love the long view thinking. I mean, I think that's something we talk a lot about also on this show is the importance of keeping our eye on what we want, you know, we want to raise adults, we're raising adults here, and adults who know themselves and have a sense of agency is really what we're after. So before we say goodbye, I I just want to give you a chance, any kind of parting thoughts or something that you would really want, you know, knowing who our audience is for the show, really want them to 
to take away as, as a key idea from this conversation? Well, I have a daughter who's now a freshman in, in high school, and she's a complicated character. Um, she ended up being almost, almost the entirety of her middle school not having friends. She's not really socially intuitive, and ended up in full-on school refusal for the last three months of eighth grade because of anxiety that then became depression. And it was pretty darn hard, I mean, particularly you know, when dad's a guy whose entire career has been helping kids get into college. I'm thinking, holy smokes. And so we had a lot of time because she wasn't in school for three months. And, and we, I remember going on this long walk and she was just beside herself, you know, and, and just, just so upset with herself and life and everything else. And I looked at her and busted the best long view, you know, courage that I could have. And I said, look, you know, you are a terrific person. You're, you're kind and you're curious and you're thoughtful. You're really funny. And you're really sharp. And I said, you're going to have a great life. And she said, she said, well, it sure doesn't seem that way. And I said, I know it doesn't. I said, but yeah, for at least on this one, I want you to trust me because I have a little more experience than do you. And so the thing that I did made a really conscious effort during that time, and I would suggest this to any parent who has a kid where life school is harder, life is harder, that hand that they've been dealt is, is hard, is to make it your highest possible priority just to love the kid that you got where he is, where she is right now. Because if we think a little bit about, you know, this constantly, this slowly developing prefrontal cortex and those executive functions that we want to come online, the great Adele Dime makes the point that if you're sad or lonely or tired or stressed, those executive functions are impacted first and impacted most. And so we can't really help our kids grow up faster than they grow up. And there are a lot of things that are hard to solve, but we can certainly tackle that of helping them not feel sad and not feel lonely simply by giving them the, the, the sunshine of our love. And that does all these things wonderful, of course, for our relationship, also for the executive functions. And, and, and thirdly, really to help them have the energy to go off and develop the lives for themselves that they want you to have as much, what they want to have as much as we want them to have them. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's just what so many of us need to hear. And just even how to be in that space with their child if they're in if they're experiencing what your daughter was going through. So thank you for that. Bill, did you have anything you wanted to share? Just add on to that that probably 30 years ago I, I consulted with this young adult who's I think is 21, who had a tough time in high school and had some chemical drug alcohol problems, had flunked out of college a couple times. And I asked him, is there something that your parents could have done differently when you were in high school that would have helped? And he said, I think it would have helped if they'd been happy to see me sometimes. But I always screwed stuff up, and they always felt that they had to be disapproving of me. And I think that one of the greatest things we can do for our kids, as, as Ned was saying, really, at the same point, is just enjoying them as they are, as much as we can, because then they experience themselves as a joy-producing organism. And... So I, I, when I talk with, with educators, even experienced educators, I just remind them that's, that's the, maybe the best thing we can do for a kid is to simply enjoy them as they are. And one of my major motivations for writing this book is I wanted, I wanted to have in writing something that would help the parents could keep referring to to remind them that it's safe not to worry about the kid all the time and not to be on the kid all the time. Oh, gosh, that's so powerful. And I think especially as kids are in adolescence and become teenagers and you know it's that hugging a porcupine kind of thing and <laughs> you know they still need to feel that we light up when we see them and uh it breaks my heart that that 
former client of yours experienced that. So, wow. And I, and I do see kids where, where, where parents, they, if the kid's not doing well, and the parents understandably feel, well, if, if I act nice to him, if I, if I just like just enjoy him, then I'm giving, then I'm giving the message that it's okay for him not to do any work, or it's okay for him to be screwed up in this way, or it's okay for him to be staying out past his curfew. So it's hard. I mean, I, I think that uh, hopefully the book is ideas about we, how we deal with, with aspects of kids' behavior that's not ideal. At the same time, we remember how important it is to enjoy them as they are, love them as they are. And to show them that we can actually still enjoy our lives as well. You sure. know, it's okay for us to be happy, even if our child is unhappy at any given time. My, my, uh, one, of, one of my relatives is one of the first people I know who 40 years ago did a, a 30-day outpatient treatment program for pot addiction. And one of the things I remember was one of the counselors during a family session said to the parents of, of people who were, were addicts, he said, one of your main goals is learn to separate your own happiness from whether your kid chooses to use or not. And it was so powerful to me. And it just, I think that if for something that, that a problem that severe, that we can apply the same thing to lesser problems. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So thank you so much to um, listeners. As you can tell, um, Ned and Bill are totally our people. You know, their book is very much in alignment with what we believe at Tilt and I have the book in audio and a hard copy because um, I refer to it a lot. So it's a self-driven child. I highly recommend you check it out. And Bill and Ned, thank you so much for the time today and just for this generous conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the work that you do. And help yeah, yeah. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including a link to Bill and Ned's website, their book, The Self-Driven Child, and the other resources we discussed today, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 158. If you want to financially support the production of this show for the price of a cup of coffee, you can become a patron and help cover the costs. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more. Lastly, don't forget to leave a rating and or a review for Tilt Parenting on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Those ratings and reviews help keep this podcast visible and helps other people find us when they need us. So thank you so much for taking the time to support the show in that way. And that's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.